Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Hi, welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast. And we're on the Compliance Podcast Network. It's hosted by Mary Shirley and me, Lisa Fine. Today is someone who I've been hoping would join the podcast for a while and is one of what we call our OG GWICs. It's Wendy Badger. Wendy is the Global Compliance Counsel at Tenneco in Minneapolis. She has experience in-house and also in law firms. She's an author, a speaker, and a mentor to so many. I'm so happy you're here. And could you just start by giving a little more about your background than I just did right there? Sure. I, I feel like I have to say this though, Lisa, like longtime listener, first time caller. <laughs> I just, I, I wanted to say that since you, you invited me on and I'm absolutely thrilled to be here and just so honored that you would invite me to, to join the great women in compliance podcast. Um, but you pretty much captured it in a nutshell in terms of my, my background. Um, yeah, I've been in both private practice and in organizations. Uh, when I first graduated from law school and started my career, I knew very early on that I wanted no part of being a litigator in big law, but wasn't quite sure what it was that I wanted to do. So I started my, my career actually with an international trade association. And, and I think that that's really what got me into compliance. A lot, big pieces of what I would do was take the law and interpret it and say, what does this truly mean for the members of that industry? What do they need to do operationally to put this into practice? And at the time... It was at the turn of the century. At the time, it didn't really have the name compliance, right? But that's truly what we were doing was figuring out how do we comply with the law? What do we, what did that organization tell its members without, you know, violating the unauthorized practice of law when we're not their attorneys? And then I realized as I got into that job that I was really enjoying it and, and kind of got an expertise in that specific area of the law and thought, well, gosh, if I can do this for all of these different companies, think what kind of an impact I could have within an organization and really affect the change. So that's when I moved and went um, in-house at one of the organizations that was a member of the trade association that I had been working for. And I was their first in-house counsel. They didn't have a compliance program to speak of. Um, and so that's what I did. I set one up. And I oversaw, as my mother-in-law would say, oversaw everything from soup to nuts. I oversaw human resources. I oversaw the compliance program, the auditing or quality assurance programs, um, policies and procedures. And they had to be licensed and bonded in, in every state where they did business. And so I managed that program too. And once I got kind of the systems set up and the processes, that's when I realized they don't need me to maintain this. They just needed help getting it set up. So then I moved uh, into private practice and thought, well, if I can do this for this organization, I can do it for a bunch of organizations. And that that's a big piece of what moved me into private practice. And I stayed in private practice for about five years. Then I realized what I didn't, I, I didn't like a lot of things about private practice, but one of the big ones was I was giving these organizations all of this fantastic advice but never knew what they did with it. Like, did they actually put it into practice? And that's when I decided I, I'm, I need to go back in-house. 
that's where I feel like I can have a better impact and effect. And then of course, when my private practice clients didn't put things into practice and they came to me because they got sued, you kind of want to do your, I told you so dance, right? Like I told you this was going to happen if you had just listened to me. So I moved back in-house. I was actually recruited to go to a role in-house and I wouldn't say start it all over again, but I truly did start from scratch and building a compliance program. And I stayed with that organization for nearly eight years where I not only built the compliance program, but then enhanced it and then took on additional areas. So by the time I left that organization, I was overseeing not just sort of the what you traditionally think of in terms of compliance, which is you know policy and procedure management. I was managing the ethics hotline, all of those things. I was also doing um, complaint management. So when it was in financial services, so when consumers would complain about processes, procedures, or how they were treated, I had a team that managed that. I also had a team that was doing quality assurance. So they were actively listening to phone calls and reviewing and, and scoring and assessing those calls to make sure we were, we had a good harmony of regulatory compliance, consumer experience, and um, business unit expectations. So I managed that process and program as well, and then ultimately decided it's time to move on again. And that's where we find myself today with Tenant Company, where I'm doing similar things now, uh, building and enhancing compliance programs, but it's in a completely different industry. I used to be in financial services, and now I'm in manufacturing. And it's a global organization, whereas primarily I had been in domestic organizations before, and now we're publicly traded as well. So it, it's, I'm finding new and different ways to stretch and enhance my skills and flex some muscles, frankly, that I haven't flexed for a while. Once you, you're in an organization that has a mature program, um, you tend to not focus on the same things. So focusing on what's new and really building that foundation up again is where I'm focused now. That's probably more detail than you wanted, yeah. but that's what you No, know, I think it's great. It really struck two significant chords with me. One is as somebody who started in law firms and while I respect them and like the work so much, I almost, I felt the same way. I felt like, okay, you get completely invested in one project and then you're kind of like, well, bye. And then later on, you might hear what happens later or something. And I like feeling, you know, sort of a part of the organization for that. I also, I do think having said that there's nothing like having good outside counsel on certain things, also people who understand the challenges of being in-house. So I think it's great, you know, when you get the opportunity to do both. Another thing that you mentioned that just made me think is coming from financial services into manufacturing, there must have been some level of a reality check because in financial services, for better or worse, you're so highly regulated in certain areas that people have, I think, a natural you know, we must comply mindset where you kind of can do the work and mature the program. I think in manufacturing and I think in a lot of industries, you have to have more almost like a sales mentality to some of what you do. I've been thinking about that a lot lately and the why, the what makes this important, you know, what, will this take away from sales, which is not necessarily always the greatest react and the cultural challenges from being global and global manufacturing um, or any industry. So I think it must've been in some ways really fun. In some ways it's kind of a, it is a new challenge. It absolutely is. I'm a year and a half in and I started in January of 2021. And so middle of a global pandemic, completely remote position to start, um, you know, never even set foot on the campus for 
close to seven months after joining the organization. So you don't get the same fit and feel and what is the culture like, and especially in manufacturing, when you really want to visit the, the manufacturing facility and see and smell what's going on and what products are we building, all of those things were kind of missing in my first few months. So from that perspective, I do feel a little bit behind the eight ball. But one of the things, Lisa, that you mentioned that is absolutely different, never mind sort of the global scope of, of the program that I'm working to build and enhance now, but in financial services, like you said, yes, highly regulated, but also very office sit at your desk oriented, right? Like that's what people do. So when you're trying to, for example, launch training, doing an online training, the course, whether it's customized or commercial off the shelf training that you're trying to launch, people are sitting at their desks doing their work, trying to accomplish a similar thing, whether you're launching anti-bribery training or code of conduct or data privacy or just in time training, even a three to five minute quick hit micro course on gifts and hospitality around the holidays, right? That takes on a completely different focus when you're dealing with manufacturing centers because you're pulling them off the assembly line. Oh, yeah. So you've got to justify why is this important to them? Is this really relevant to them? Why do they need to do it? And so in some cases, we've had to figure out a different way. There's some, some points where we said, you know what? No, not everyone is going to go through our code of conduct course. That said, that doesn't mean they're not getting the content. Right. But so then we need to think about what are the metrics that we're reporting to the board of directors? Because if they're looking at completion rates, we're not going to have 100% completion ever because we're constantly getting new people coming on board that we want to go through the training. And if we're looking just at the way the training was facilitated, we're not going to get 100% compliance with an online training course. But what we will do is take the key topics that were addressed in that training and bring it to HR business partners will bring it to the management team in the manufacturing facilities and say, address these issues at your all hands meeting or bring us in. We'll pop in virtually or eventually when, you know, protocols allow, we'll do it in person. Give us five minutes and we'll talk about it. It doesn't have to be an hour long training session that someone is sitting at a desk or that you have to reserve time at a kiosk in a manufacturing facility. So we're trying to find different ways that we can incorporate that training and still accomplish that same purpose. And I think that's what the DO, the Department of Justice in the US, I think that's what they're looking for, right? Like you're customizing it, you're tailoring it to what those needs are, not just to do some check the box training. We're actually trying to be mindful about what we're launching and how we're launching it to make it meaningful. And not that anyone's ever going to be standing in line, raising their hand, going, oh, oh, I want to take your compliance training, yeah. but they are going to hopefully maybe not dread it, yeah. you know, and, and in my last role, we found all sorts of different ways to try and make training engaging. You know, we did, um, one of the things I'm most proud of from that role is, is we, once a quarter, we would do what we called compliance rocks and it would be quarterly compliance training where we brought a whole bunch of topics in and we tried to make it fun you know, one time we did uh, Values Jeopardy. Yep. Another time we did a version of Hollywood Squares where we had our entire executive leadership team as our squares. And we asked both industry-related regulatory content, testing knowledge there. But then we threw in some fun questions like, what was the first concert Wendy Badger ever attended? The answer is Donny Osmond, if you're curious. 
Anyway, I, mean, I was was thinking it might be a new kids on the block. I know you've had a recent experience seeing them. I did. Well, we may want to hold some time at the end to talk about that because that was an experience. So I'm not <laughs> sure anyone wants to hear about current day me enjoying what 14 year old me did. And I got to say, Lisa, I'm kind of still recovering. Well, I'm glad that you were able to come here. I, I feel the same way about like certain bands or other things that, that you're just, I finally had to see Duran Duran a few years ago, not to completely date myself, but I was still, when I was, you know, young was kind of like, these are going to be my best friends when I get older. So yep. you know, they were there with, you know, their 40,000 best friends from Washington, DC, but you know, I feel like we, we covered some ground there. <laughs> yeah. A little bit of a, tra- a time travel there for me when yeah. I went to that concert, but but yeah, um, so we tried to make that fun and Compliance Rocks was actually an acronym, um, which first of all, I thought it was fun to make people say Compliance Rocks. <laughs> and, you know, because we it was a whole thing and I wanted to get t-shirts. That was one thing I was never able to get done. But we, it was basically, we branded the program, right? We branded that training and, and Rocks was an acronym that stood for Resources for Organizational Knowledge Symposium. Now that's the mif- a mouthful, but it sounds way cooler when you're passing people in the hallway and they're like, hey, Wendy, compliance rocks. And they like, we're literally like pumping their fists, you know, like at the end of breakfast club. Now I'm dating myself where, you know, like he does a big fist pump at the end. That's how people would walk by me in the halls and they'd be like, compliance rocks, which I'm sure that visual is super awesome for our listening audience. <laughs> um, But anyway, like, and that's kind of the energy that I'm trying to recreate in my current job, trying to find ways that how can we make that fun without, to your earlier point, disrupting the sales process or slowing things down. And so I've become a big proponent and really trying to explain, but if we incorporate these things up front, we don't have to do the rework and we're not going to slow you down because we've, we've built it in by design, like everything by design, right? Privacy by design. And third-party diligence by design, building all of that into the process up front creates less friction at the end. You know, one of the conversations I recently had with one of our business units was, was all about how, well, we can't ask all of our distributors or third parties or suppliers to answer this super long due diligence questionnaire. No one's ever had that issue before. (laughs) I'm sure. I'm sure this is a completely unique issue to to my organization, right? No compliance professionals ever faced this before. And so I said, well, then let's look at the questionnaire itself. What questions do we need to be asking? What do we need to know? What do we want to know? And what do we need to just be able to go look it up, right? So we can certainly pare that down, but I kind of flipped it back onto our business units and said, you know, you might not be the ones filling out these questionnaires, But I guarantee you, our customers, folks that are buying our products, folks who are looking at us to be, do we want to be a distributor for this organization? And in other types of of aspects, they're asking us to fill out similar questionnaires, particularly as it now, you know, as ESG, environmental, social, and governance is becoming a much bigger, more prominent issue and sustainability, certainly with some of our products and what goes into our products and all of that stuff we have to respond to those questionnaires. Our sales team, our service team, they might not be the ones who are filling them out. They're, you know, they go to the people in the organization with the the best information to be able to answer those questions. So whether they're going to our director of sustainability and her team or coming to our compliance team to say, can we really agree to this supplier code of conduct? Um, We are filling them out. We are answering those questions. 
So it becomes a red flag to those organizations if we aren't asking those questions, at least the, you know, the reputable ones that we want to be doing business with. So when I kind of put it in those terms, they had a, what I call kind of a head scratch moment. They kind of did the, wait a minute, that pause and reflect, maybe she's right. So anyway, it was just a very interesting conversation to just kind of flip the script around that way and say, you know, we have to do this too. It's it's not like we're, and, and the more our questions can be similar to questions that our other organizations are asking, really the less onerous it becomes because organizations are going to have kind of a ready list of their responses. So we can streamline portions of it too. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, and I think it's just going to become more and more important. Um, and it sounds like in your year and a half, you've had a lot of those experiences and it'll be great when you can actually get your feet in a, in a facility. I, you know, miss that a lot from now with COVID, not going to offices, so we don't have the scene. But when I was at Gate Gourmet, just going every time I had to, you know, go to a city or had to do work there, getting to take a tour of the, the catering of the kitchen and other things, it makes such a difference in understanding. And it makes a huge difference to the people that are there. Um, you know, I mean, I was able eventually to have conversations about dish rooms. And I just found the different, like, I don't know, I nerded out over the different kinds of like equipment they had. But the fact that I actually could talk about that, you know, encouraged a lot more trust, which helped a lot sometimes when six months or a year or two years later, and something, you know, that I kind of wanted to ask you about, you've spoken about it recently, you know, when I've had to do investigations to, you know, deal with these same people who I, you know, I had the good fortune of meeting them before these, in some circumstances, or getting to know them by being in person, you've been a new in a new job and you've had to do remote investigations. Um, you know, how has that gone for you? You know, it's been a bit of a mixed bag and you, you know, you're absolutely right. Getting that, I call it street cred, right? Like you, yeah. you get that credibility when you can get, have your boots on the ground in the facilities and the organizations in my last job, that was a big thing when we would, we would do what we called code on the road and take our code of conduct training in person every other year. And um, we would go, my, um, the co-administrator of our code of conduct and I would go to every single location that we had so that, so that we could explain the process and we could see and be seen so people knew who we were and had that measure of trust and we had some credibility. And the fact then, like you said, that we could speak their language in terms of their jobs and what they're doing made a big difference. And so Um, In getting to your question about remote investigations, one of the things that I've said I really want to do for me and the person uh, who I recently hired for my team, uh, I said, not only do we need to get in those facilities and do a tour, and I've toured our manufacturing facility, but not like our innovation center, and I haven't been to all of our manufacturing facilities, I also want to do a ride along with our sales and service staff, Mm -hmm. right, like, and because then we can, not only does that give you that street card, but you also then can tailor all of your training, but you asked about remote investigations. And I think I was in my role, in my current role for six weeks, maybe give or take a, I don't know, a day or two here or there. And I had two international issues come up, one in um, APAC and one in Latin America that I'm like, I can't get on a plane. Well, first of all, I can't be in two places at once. So something was, they both happened around the same time. So somehow something was going to have to give, even if I could hop on a plane and parachute in somewhere to do an in-person investigation. So we had to figure out very quickly, what do we do? What are, frankly, what are the COVID protocols in both of these locations? Can we even hire someone 
locally to go on site or would someone even local because then you've got translation issues too right you know um is someone who speaks the local language can we have them do a remote investigation so we can kind of cut out that piece where if i'm doing it remotely i still need a translator in many circumstances so there's all kinds of those issues but with remote investigations i i kind of look at them a little bit like when I was doing them in private practice, when you come in and you're an unknown entity, that's kind of how I felt when I first joined my organization. And you're trying to immediately build that trust and immediately build that rapport with someone who's never met you. They're super anxious and nervous because this is likely the first time they've ever experienced being on some side of an investigation. So trying to make them feel at ease and, you know, is, is a big part of remote investigations, I think. And, um, Everything that you need to think about and plan for in, I'll just say a regular in-person investigation, you also have to plan for and think about in a remote investigation or a virtual investigation. And then there's more, like none of that other stuff goes away. So the planning and the scoping becomes, I think, that much more critical. And when I've um, done presentations, I've really focused more on the interview parts of remote investigations and how do you earn that rapport right away. And one of the things that I talk about is um, you kind of have to explain everything that you're doing in a little bit more detail, because all you get to see is what's in, you know, kind of the four corners of your video screen. Right. And um, so, you know, I try and not blur my background because then people start to wonder, what am I trying to hide? Mm -hmm. I, I always wear my headset as well, because that's, I think, a nonverbal visual cue that says, I am keeping this private and confidential. No one else in this space that I'm in can hear you, especially if it's obvious I'm not at a corporate location when I'm conducting the, the interview. The other thing I think about is, does this even have to be a video interview? Can this just be a phone call where that might be put some people at ease a little bit too? And try and be really familiar with the technology because the more familiar I am with it, the easier it's going to be to kind of have a, a feel and a flow mm -hmm. to the investigation. And I'll kind of, I'll, I'll stop talking about it at this point. Um, but I think the other thing too is like, what technology is that person familiar with? Are they familiar with Zoom or WebEx or Teams? Make it easier for them if they're in a more comfortable virtual environment, that might make things easier. And I also am a big proponent of do, turning off self-view because people get so distracted <laughs> by like seeing themselves on screen. And then um, actually I'll, I'll end on this point because I think witness credibility assessments are much more difficult in a virtual environment. Um, and, and that's due to any number of different reasons, you know, people are, are already nervous and heightened and then add the virtual aspect into it. But I've really been thinking a lot more about witness credibility and witness assessments, um, especially as we've been getting more involved in a diversity, equity, and inclusion perspective. Uh, because when you think about how you make eye contact in a virtual setting, mm -hmm. if you're looking at the screen it looks like you're not making eye contact, even though in my mind, it looks like I'm looking directly into your eyes. I actually have to be looking at the camera right. in order to make eye contact. But then I actually can't see what's going on on the screen if I'm doing that. Exactly. So how am I able to assess that? 
And similarly for the person on the other end who I'm interviewing, they've got kind of like, so I try and not put too much of that assessment on those types of things because they might think they're making eye contact with me when they're looking at the screen. So I try not to let technology influence too much of that. And then I made the DE&I point as well from an, um, from, for the perspective of individuals who are um, neurodivergent, particularly folks somewhere on the autism spectrum, they often try and mirror and, and wear a mask and um, figuratively, not literally, but wear a mask of trying to mimic the person that they're talking to because that's considered socially acceptable. Right. But that takes so much energy if you let them take off that mask and have that safe space for them to do that and they don't feel the need to do that, chances are they're going to be what some people would call fidgety. They're not going to sit still. They're not going to make mm-hmm. eye contact with you. And like almost every investigations training that I have gone to would said would say those are all red flags. That means the person's lying to you. And I don't think that's true. So it really makes you kind of think differently about how you're assessing witness credibility, especially when you don't know if someone is neurodivergent or if you're sharing a document and that person is dyslexic. How are you sharing that document? I mean, that's a rabbit hole we could go down as well in terms <laughs> of remote investigations. But like, so there any different piece of that, and we didn't even talk about further technology issues and how are you mirroring or mimicking when you do an in-person investigation and you've got maybe standing right outside the door, you've got physical security, you've got HR, you know, potentially ready to escort somebody out of the room or intervene if you need to. What's the, the remote equivalent of that? You know, do you have IT on standby if you need to wipe somebody's computer equipment immediately or disconnect their access to things, depending on what you find? Because as you know very well and recently, right, Lisa? Mm-hmm. But wait, there's more. <laughs> Continue to find out more and you ask more questions and you more information. Like you never know what direction an investigation interview is going to take you. So how you make the, the in-person equivalence in, in a remote investigation, like there is no shortage of issues that, that come up. And you lose a little bit as well because in, an, in a remote investigation, you don't have sort of the element of surprise anymore. Like I can't just walk up to someone's desk and say, Hey, do you have a few minutes to chat with me about something when I don't want them to know if something's coming? Like you have to set up the meeting. You have to make sure, do they have access to the appropriate technology? And if not, how am I going to make those arrangements? You know, not everybody is privileged enough to have Wi-Fi and a computer with a camera enabled access in order to do that from home and never mind the fact that that's compensable time. Like, so there's so many issues to to think about from that perspective. So do I need to set up a conference room that has video technology enabled if we're not able to be in the same physical space, you know, or need to maintain social distancing from a COVID protocol standpoint? Like, even though we could be in the same building, we might not be able to be in the same room. So you need that, those technology aspects too. So like all of those things kind of start to come into play. And so one of the th- I gave a presentation actually with another great woman in compliance, Lisa Bethlantini Walker. And one of the things that we have said in, in those presentations throughout this whole pandemic is, you know, people keep saying, oh, we're all in the same boat. We're not. Absolutely not. We 100% are not. We are all in the same ocean dealing with a global pandemic and other various and sundry 
levels of ca catastrophe and whatnot, but we are not in the same boat. Some of us are in luxury yachts that have all sorts of access and privilege and Wi-Fi access and all of those things. And some of us, if we're lucky to have a life raft, it might be one of those inflatable ones that has a hole in it and is rapidly taking in water. So we are, you know, people lost their jobs, people, you know, and for some people, I always try and remember this, no matter the circumstances, remote or anything else. Sometimes, you know, that one of the big things people said during the pandemic was safe at home, stay safe, stay home. For some people, home is not safe. Home, it's the least safe place you can be. Exactly. And I'm always trying to be mindful of that when I'm doing certainly a remote interview, because you don't know what's going on and, you know, around them outside their four corners. So I'm almost never comfortable asking them to like, give me a 360 visual of the yeah. space they're, they're in. They could be embarrassed by it. And you are essentially an unwelcome, never mind uninvited guest in their space, safe or not. And Absolutely. so those, like all of that weighs pretty heavy when you're thinking about remote investigation. Absolutely. And I think two really practical tips too. I always try when it's a different time zone than me to do it when it's convenient for them, because I want to set the ground rules, uh, understanding that like, I'm trying to make this work for you. And even that sometimes when it's with somebody from Asia and I say, I'll do it at nine o'clock, 10 o'clock at night, my time. And in the morning for you, that is also an unspoken thing of, you know, you're, you know, how can we do this to make it convenient? Now, somebody says they want to do it at three in the afternoon, which is three in the morning. I, I'd like a little more justification because I may not be the best interviewer, you know, let alone assessing a witness um, being awake. Right. It's not so great, but I, you know, you do what you can. I mean, the other thing is being a human being during it, take it, you know, for, be, for, you know, like you said, not blurring the background, understanding that things can happen that are chaotic. I will, you know, I will say, cause I talk about my dog every so often when he interrupts a, an investigation or a presentation, it's actually never, not usually a bad thing, or maybe with a presentation sometimes, but it actually is like this person who's asking me questions, it's a human being, you know, when kids show up or when others, you know, or, you know, a family member pops in, it, it makes, it makes it a less intimidating, and at least I think in my view, and that allows people to feel more comfortable sharing because you're not just this, you know, lady from, you know, lady from compliance, you know, even my, you know, for me, American lady from compliance asking questions, you're also a human being and absolutely respect that. And I think people sometimes get so caught up in everything they need to do that, you know, you forget that that couple minutes of human connection, um, you know, makes a difference no matter whether it's absolutely. in the units or others. And, you know, that's also the other big thing I wanted to ask you about too, just my big segue now. Um, is, you know, you are a person who's a connector, particularly for women and particularly in your community. And I mean, we're all re-entering, you know, whether it's, you know, we're in the same ocean, but we're re-entering a place where we might all see each other more. People get doing, you know, in-person networking. You do a lot for that. Um, you know, I know even for me, when I went to the SCCE conference, the first day or two in in Las Vegas, which was an amazing experience. I was in complete culture shock. I, even though I had done Zoom networking and seen several people, all of a sudden, I mean, it was like sensory overload for me. Um, okay. And it was fascinating. So how are you, you know, you know, how are you adapting to post Zoom networking and for starters? And have you seen a difference for you? Yeah, it's been... Um... It's been slow, a slow re-entry, a cautious re-entry is what I would say, you know, not starting with smaller events, 
more local events, largely outside events. Now that it's, you know, somewhat decent outside in, in Minnesota, um, we have a very limited window for <laughs> outside outside um, socialization in Minnesota. But um, I would say it's a very slow reentry and I need to be comfortable like around what those protocols are. And to your point in being, it goes, comes back to communication and being human like respecting the fact that not everybody is in the same space. Not everyone is ready for like full on hugs and in your face kind of intensity of what some networking events or socialization events can be. And so what I have found helpful is to just be very intentional about which events I'm choosing mm -hmm. to attend, understanding what the parameters and protocols are that are in place um, how many people are going to be there, kind of all of those things. And what I really, and I think SCCE might have done a version of this, but I helped to coordinate uh, an event through um, a local association here that I'm a part of, the Minnesota Women Lawyers Group. Um, I'm the I'm co-chair of their membership and engagement committee. And we co-hosted and facilitated an, an, a networking event where we had name tags encouraging people to come and trying to accomplish two things, right? Membership and engagement. So recruitment, conversion, um, retention, kind of all of those things mm -hmm. and really just welcoming people back. And so we had name tags. And what we did was we also had mark, it was write your own name tag out because we didn't require RSVPs. And then we had red, yellow, and green markers. Mm -hmm. And you just put a little circle on your name tag. Red meant I'm not ready for social engagement, maybe a long distance high five, possibly an elbow bump is what I'm comfortable with. Yellow was, I might be comfortable with physical touching and closeness, but let me take the lead. And green was like, all bets are off. Come on in with your hugs and your double kisses on the cheeks and what, you know, whatever. So that was helpful because then you were, it, it provided that instant respect because you knew what people's boundaries were mm -hmm. without even having to, to speak about it. And I think SCCE might've done a, something similar with like wristbands of they, similar they did. colors or something. They did. Of course, I wore a green and a yellow because I was like, there are some people I'm, I'm okay with, but I, some <laughs> people I don't know. So that didn't really, I was not the, uh, you know, the, the basically the best representative for the decision, but um, you know, it was kind of funny because I'm thinking, well, what about what, you know, I, I sort of got a little lawyerly about it, but after that I gave up, but what was lovely, was amazing for me, it was like a full day of it. And it was a day that I presented I was in this great conversation, I started with, with Christy Grant Hart, another fabulous yeah. woman in compliance and who's been a guest of ours and a friend. And she just, I, partway through, she, she, and she just looked at me, I looked at her and I was like, I don't know how much more I can do today. She was like, kind of like, okay, go to sleep. Cause it had been a long day. And it was just, that was one of the experiences for me. Yeah. It hit home for me. Well, so, and Lisa, I think you and I might both be introverts as well. And so I, I yeah, I have that super fun com combination of things where not only am I an introvert, meaning being with large groups of people kind of drains my energy. Mm -hmm. I get re-energized more by alone time or, or smaller groups and really engaging on a, you know, and connecting. Mm -hmm. um, I find large groups very draining. Um, but I also have the fun combination of that with also being cripplingly shy. Mm -hmm. And so the thought of emerging back into networking events, like I have lost all of the situational extrovert skills that I have taught myself to be in the moment and how to engage and what to do and kind of get over myself and my own awkwardness. Um, I've had to kind of relearn a lot of that. And um, 
I was just at an SCCE event. We had our regional SCCE event here in Minneapolis a few weeks ago. And um, due to a kind of a comedy of errors, I ended up, um, I was originally going to facilitate a third of the day. And I ended up being like the MC and the moderator and the facilitator for the entire day. Oh, you must've been exhausted. I was, I will tell you this story, try and keep it very quick. I was exhausted after the second introduction. <laughs> and um, because the, the second person to speak said, I don't want you to give me an intro. I hate intros. And I was like, okay, well, I kind of have to introduce you. And he's like, all right, well, here's the deal then. You have 30 seconds or less. You cannot read my bio and you have to be creative. And I thought, what am I going to do with that? So I came up with what I thought, something that I thought was creative, spent the first hour not paying attention to the speakers. Apologies to Robert Bond and Brad Hammer, who were our first speakers. <laughs> but um, spent the entire first hour planning out my intro that had to be 30 seconds or less. And then literally told the entire group that was there, the only reason right now, told them what my rules were for this intro. And I said, the only reason I know I'm not dreaming right now this may be not a, we may need to edit this out, Lisa. I'm fully clothed. And I know if I was in a dream and about to do what I'm about to do, I probably would not be. And I perceive- You definitely not want to edit that. That's a fabulous, you know, that's our fear. Like that's, that's one of my biggest fears. And so um, I'm, I said, okay, so here goes. And the, the presenter's name, I will never forget this. His name is Lottie Arafala. And he was a cybersecurity expert who joined us from St. Louis. And he founded his own firm and all the things. And so I thought, okay, well, his name is Lottie. What can I do with that? So I memorized the entire first verse of Lottie Dottie. We like to party. We don't cause trouble. We don't bother nobody. I literally stood up in front of this entire group of people and did that rap and didn't just stand there. Like I straight up was dancing in the aisle between the two, like the way they had the room set up. I was dancing up and down this aisle and like, doing this rap. And I don't think that's what he expected because he was like, that did not just happen. And he comes and high fives me. So I, after that, um, I text one of the people who was going to uh, co-facilitate with me who happened to um, <laughs> nearly break her. She probably should have broken it. It probably would have been better, but she was injured and couldn't stand and walk and nor drive, nor do any of these other things. So I'm like, don't worry about this. I got this. I texted her and I'm like, I've peaked. I'm done. She's like, <laughs> and she's like, that's okay. I can take it from here. And I'm like, no, no, I will still handle the rest of the day. I just mean, it's not going to get better than that. Like it's all downhill from here. Like that I'm not doing that again. And so for an introvert who is cripplingly shy to do that at one of the first <laughs> events back kind of reemerging from, um, from this, uh, COVID pandemic and some of the shutdowns, like, that took a lot out of me. Like it, it took a few days to recover from that. Fortunately, it was on a Friday. So I had the weekend and that story took longer than I intended it to. No, no. And it, in some ways, it's actually a perfect way to end for about three different reasons. I also, we had um, the compliance week, which is another fabulous conference in DC a few weeks ago. I was still staying at home so that, you know, I live right near there in Washington, DC, but I really on that Friday afternoon, it was the same thing needed the nap. And I'm, I enjoy company people. I, in some ways I'm more, I call it more of a social introvert. Like when I'm comfortable, I'm there, I get that energy, but when I'm done, I'm, I'm gone. But I have to say the reason I think that that story 
is fabulous is for a few reasons and why I think it's a great way to you know come to the end of our discussion. First of all, it shows the resilience and it shows one of the reasons why you you know are somebody in our community who can take a situation like that and you know make it into something that becomes unforgettable and brings fun to compliance, which you've kind of brought as a theme, probably without even realizing it throughout. And second of all, this is for sure, and I, I can say, even, even if I've missed a, a merry episode here or there, first and probably only time that Slick Rick has been part of this <laughs> podcast. Um, and <laughs> since I am a very big old school hip hop fan, and we've also had our music theme, I mean, I don't know how I can top that. Uh, well, I can tell you this, you are the only one who knew it was Slick Rick. Everybody else thought it was somebody else. And and I and I said, when I got up on the stage later, I was like, apologies to Slick Rick. Like, <laughs> Could not have been worse, but yeah. And I don't think, I don't think people at an ethics and compliance conference were expecting something like that. So I, I do hope that it brought a little bit of fun. And if anything, it probably woke people up because I guarantee it was out loud and off key. It's the only way I know how to do it. Yeah. I mean, and don't forget you had a little bit doggy fresh in there too. I mean, somebody yeah. could have, I mean, frankly, I think they let you down by not beatboxing with you, but I will let <laughs> that slide for now. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, I, and I, I think it really shows, you know, this, this is resilience and this is, you know, one of the things you talked about at the beginning is doing this work from soup to nuts. And that really puts it at a whole different kind of level. So, I mean, I don't know if there's any other, you know, career advice or anything else you want to share before we close up um, or at a minimum, you know, what concert we should go to next since I've now decided that you are completely in my wheelhouse of music. So... Um, well, I have to think about, I'm going to get back to you on that concert question, but I, I want to sort of wrap up by giving a shout out to, to three people. Um, first, um, and, and that all ties into your question about career advice. So first I would have to say my mom, and my, well, my parents, but it, we're talking about great women. So we'll talk about my mom, whose birthday, by the way, is on International Women's Day. I do not think that's a coincidence. <laughs> um, but my mom and dad always taught us to leave it better than you found it. And that has been kind of my guiding principle through every job I've ever had, every project I've ever done. Will this make it better? Am I making it better than I found it? And um, and when I leave an organization, that's kind of my my touchstone. Did I leave things better than I found it? So I think that's um, a, a key piece of advice that has really guided me. And then two other pieces that... Um, that really are you and your, your co-host, Mary Shirley, that I got from. Um, so Mary, in, in a separate conversation that I had with her a while ago, I was not in a great headspace. And I was talking with Mary and she just, like if we had been in the same room, I just feel her like sitting me down and like grabbing my hand with both of her hands and saying, Wendy, you cannot heal in the environment that made you sick. And like, I literally wrote that on my whiteboard in my home office because it resonated with me so deeply. And I just thought she's absolutely right. I'm never going to get better if I don't leave the environment that I'm in. And that applies to so many areas of your life, not just a work environment or, you know, any kind of relationship. So shout out to, to Mary Shirley on that one. And then Lisa, you once, I don't remember if this was when you were interviewed for Mentor Core or just in a conversation that you and I had. Um, and this really drove me when I was looking for my next role. When I left my last job, you said, don't, you said, chase the work, not the title. And that was, and that really hit me. I was like, yeah, what do I want to do? Like what work kind of fills me up? And so I really thought about that. 
um, when I was looking for a new role, but I would tweak that advice. I've actually recently gave this advice when I had a mentoring conversation. I'll take a, I'll take a better version of my own advice anytime. Well, I, I wouldn't say it's better. And I, I think it's, it's um, circumstance specific. Right. No, I, I would say chase the work, negotiate the title. Because the title can matter, especially in a publicly traded organization, you know, from a compensation perspective on the one hand, but also just for organizations that defer to authority versus expertise, yeah. the title might matter. But if you start by chasing the work, you can always negotiate the title. So, but if I you like just are looking at titles, I, I, I think you're going to, you're going to, um, you're going to self-select out of something that might be really great for you. And so the context in which I gave that advice was there's an, a woman who I've been talking with who has a unique opportunity to rewrite her job description. Yeah. They've recently gone through some restructuring and gotten some promotions. And her new boss said, well, we should probably redo your job description so it's more reflective of what you're doing and think about your title. And so there, I, especially if she's thinking about in the next, I don't know how long leaving the organization, I said, she absolutely needs to chase the title there. Oh yeah, definitely. Like I, that's going to set her up differently. So like circumstances matter, but I gave her that same advice. I said, you chase the work, let's have it be reflective and negotiate your title. Right. And, and I think it will serve her well if she gets the, you know, the titles that we were kind of talking about, but it was all take out, like none of this was my original thought stuff. It was all from, you know, from you and Mary Shirley and others who I've heard on this amazing podcast that has created such an amazing impact on my career and network. So thank you to both you and Mary Shirley. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for, for joining me and Mary and for being our friend and our colleague and on behalf of Mary, me, the Compliance Podcast Network and all of us. Thanks so much, Wendy. Um, and for everyone else, have a great rest of the day. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.